Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for this Monday, November the 16th. Coming up, we'll talk to Rabina Ahmed-Hawk, our personal finance expert, about a possible second wave of business and personal insolvencies. Also, epidemiologist Dr. Raywat Dionandan talks about New Zealand's go-for-zero approach when it comes to COVID. And our travel and insurance specialist talks about snowbirds defying government orders and heading south this winter. All of that coming up right now on the pod. As you just heard, the Premier announcing a $1,000 PPE grant for small business today. Good news, but is it enough? One business analyst says, quote, an earthquake is coming when it comes to business insolvencies. Financial expert Rabina Ahmed-Hawk is on the line and joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Rabina, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Okay, that's the headline in a piece in the Financial Post, that an earthquake is coming Are we about to see a a second wave of bankruptcies, do you think? Well, it's already started. Uh, Even personal insolvencies, personal bankruptcies are up in September. Um, A lot of people who have been unable to return to work, the CERB uh, payments have now run out. They may not qualify for the new recovery benefits. So we're seeing an increase. I think a 20% increase is what I read of of Canadians uh, uh, who are in uh, in a situation now where they will have to either seek some sort of consumer protection or they're going to have to claim bankruptcy. And so that's on the personal side of it. But even on the business side of it, I think that you know what this insolvency team is saying is actually quite accurate, that many of these supports, the wage subsidies, the CERB, the, 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 the interest-free loans that banks, uh, that governments have given out, are keeping some companies alive artificially, uh, companies that would probably have failed if, it, if the pandemic had never happened. But now they're keeping these companies alive. And then on top of it, when things get back to normal, so when the pandemic is over, and they now have to, to, to operate on their own devices. Are they going to be able to bring in that kind of revenue to continue to, to, to operate at this level? Yeah, it just seems like every other day we're hearing of another business uh, sadly going under. I know Montecito late last week. Uh, love that restaurant. Uh, they announced that they're uh, closing uh, for good. And, of course, we've had uh, announcements from the uh, provincial government and the municipal government, uh, Rubina, over the last few days about uh, property tax and uh, energy uh, relief, uh, relief on uh, hydro, hydro uh, costs. As a matter of fact, businesses can start applying for that today. Is that enough, though, do you think? Well, you know, again, it's probably enough to get us through the short term. And many companies, you know, we before even the pandemic started, we would talk a lot about retails, right, in malls. Um, are people still going into malls? Are people still shopping that way? Uh, does the retail sector have to have an overhaul where they now are more online? And in some cases, the pandemic has kind of just accelerated that growth, right? All of a sudden, companies that were not so robust when it came to their online service have become that way because that's the only way they're going to survive. And yes, the supports that the government is providing, whether it be on the municipal, provincial or federal level, is helping them survive this time. But once all of this comes to an end, eventually these companies have to survive on their own. And we know, even before the pandemic, that 95% of companies, small businesses, 1 to 99 employees, this is data from 2019 from the Science and Economic Development of Canada, 
uh, that they don't survive after five years. Um, and that's, you know, that's 7,000 businesses going bankrupt every single year in Canada. So, you know, small businesses going bankrupt because of all a number of different reasons is nothing new. The pandemic has really kind of just put that extra pressure uh, on those businesses, especially those that are quite young. And all those supports that are coming are keeping them going. But many of those businesses may not be great businesses and may not survive after when, when they're actually left to their own device. And you mentioned the number of jobs that these small businesses create, upwards of 100. Every time one of these small businesses go under, theoretically, that's 100 people who are sadly no longer employed, don't have income coming in. As you mentioned off the top, this is hitting uh, personal as well as it is business-wise. Yeah, so small business, we often refer to it as the backbone of Canada, and it truly is. Um, majority of Canadians are employed with uh, a company that has less than 500 people, and that is considered a small to medium-sized enterprise. And so not all of us work for big conglomerates. Many of us work for smaller companies, Some, in some cases 10, 11, 12 people. And those are the companies then that really do have very slim operating margins. So, you know, a restaurant is the best example in in the pandemic that has been really struggling so they really do rely on uh, not just the weekend rush but they rely on the Thanksgiving rush the Christmas rush the the tourism that comes in in the summer and all of that has just been wiped out so those people may not be able to make payroll may not be able to pay their rent uh, definitely can't afford to buy new inventory and stock so that they can be ready for the next wave of customers if they're allowed to have them whether it be takeout or indoor or outside with a with some some sort of heater on, uh, they can't even afford those supplies in some cases. So, uh, you know, many people are going to lose their jobs because those companies, we've seen the signs, closed due to COVID-19. And th- that, you know, may be inconvenient to you, but that's a loss of maybe 10, 12, 15 jobs. Yeah, just quickly, uh, Rabina, do we expect a, a big announcement of insolvencies in January? I mean, how many of these companies are holding on for the holiday rush, the holiday uh, season? And if those numbers aren't uh, right or they're down, then sadly we're going to see... Uh, quite a few more businesses closing. Yeah, so the holidays is going to be the acid test. It really is going to make or break some companies. Uh, I do believe that they're using the supports that are coming their way to get them through the holidays, hoping that they will be able to get enough revenue to stay alive for 2021. Um, we, I definitely think we're going to see business businesses, many more businesses go under in January. January in and of itself is a slow month. A lot of people don't spend money in January as it is, and it will be more so after the pandemic. And even personal bankruptcies, you know, the, the mortgage defer- program, which you and I have talked about, that's now come to an end. So some people are not only running their business, but also dealing with increased costs on the personal side and all of that coming together. You know, I've been calling it the deferral cliff. It really is, you know, a point where it's a lot of people are just not going to survive, whether it's uh, personal bankruptcy or or business bankruptcy. All right. Rabina, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Rabina Ahmed Hawk, 640 Toronto's personal finance expert. We got some good news about a second potential COVID vaccine. Also, the hashtag zero COVID trending over the weekend, saying that Canada should go for zero when it comes to COVID and have more of a a national strategy moving forward. For more on all of this, we're joined now by Dr. Raywat Dionandan. He's an epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. He's on the line and joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. Dionandan, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate you having you on. Thanks for having me on. Okay, uh, big news first off on the vaccine front. Moderna says that they've got a vaccine that's roughly 95% effective. Uh, What more, if anything, do we know about this, doctor? 
Well, we know that it seems to work on a diverse set of people as opposed to the Pfizer vaccine that did not reveal that information. So Moderna says that they have a more diverse ethnic makeup of their recipients. We also know that amongst those who experience a more severe version of COVID, they're entirely in the placebo group, which is great. And more importantly, we know that this formulation can be stored at a slightly higher temperature. It still has to be kept cold, but in a refrigeration unit that already exists in most drugs stores. So deployment would be easier for this vaccine. I was going to ask you about that. When it comes to the Pfizer vaccine announced last week, we've learned that it must be stored at roughly minus 75 degrees Celsius. Just how much of a challenge or a roadblock would that be getting the Pfizer vaccine out to the masses? It certainly is an impediment. I'm not sure how bad of an impediment it is. I mean, think about it. You have to ship it around the country, which means the uh, the trucks and the planes have to be equipped with that kind of refrigeration capacity. And then when you get to wherever it's going to, even remote towns, you have to have that kind of advanced refrigeration in place. If, on the other hand, the Moderna vaccine can be stored in existing refrigeration units and shipped in the existing capacity that we have, that helps a lot. Um, hopefully, the new ones coming down the pipeline will be stable in room temperature, and that'll be even fantastic. Mm -hmm. Right now, would you favor the Moderna one over the Pfizer, just knowing what we know right now? Well, that's a tough call. It's hard to say. I mean, Pfizer has a good track record for bringing good quality products to the market. Moderna has never brought any product to the market. This is their first uh, stab at it. Um, On the other hand, their effectiveness is pretty impressive, and it is, as you mentioned, more stable. I would be happy with either one, to be honest. And I know there's going to be some hesitancy whenever a vaccine candidate comes to the world, but I would be among the first in line to get it if, in fact, it is available to me. And with this announcement from Moderna today, is there any doubt in your mind that we are going to see a vaccine in 2021 and maybe early 2021? Oh, there's no doubt in my mind. In fact, I think we're going to get emergency use authorization for both of those in the USA, at least before the end of this year. That means, you know, some handful of high-risk individuals will probably get access to it. I think in Canada, we'll probably start uh, getting access to a vaccine for our healthcare workers and the extremely vulnerable by the spring and hopefully a good immunogenic response by the summer. And so I'm I'm fond of telling people that I don't think we'll be afraid of this disease this time next year. We'll still be wearing our masks and distancing because we won't have herd immunity, but it won't be a crisis situation. And into 2022, I think we can start unrolling more of the economy and maybe even declaring the pandemic over. All right. In the meantime, back on Friday, the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, said that we are staring down the barrel of a lockdown. At this point, considering where the numbers are at, where they're projected to go in this province, is a lockdown inevitable, do you think? Some kind of extreme restriction is probably inevitable. Things are out of control. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the goal here? Is the goal simply to to get by on a day-to-day basis by the skin of our teeth with our healthcare workers getting frazzles more so every day, with our death count slightly rising, with our ICU capacity being strained? If, if that's not sustainable. And so we have to do something. It may look like you know closing down some parts of the province strategically. It may look like closing some sectors down. I hope it doesn't come to the hammer of closing the entire province. That is a final option. And I think we have enough information that probably won't have to do that, but it may come to it. And uh, never say never. You know? We're heading into a tough time around the holidays. 
Without a doubt. wanted to ask you about the uh, circuit breaker strategy, because doctors in Alberta, once again, are calling for that either 14 or 28 days. And for those that don't know, that is a series of very tough uh, restrictions for a limited uh, time frame. Uh, what is your take, Dr. Dionandan, on this so-called circuit breaker? Well, I feel it's a compromise between doing nothing and doing something a bit more impactful. Uh, and that compromise is there because of what people can tolerate. I'm fond of saying that public health is the art of the possible. And what is possible is based on what the public will tolerate. So if you tell people that you only have to sustain these extreme restrictions for a couple of weeks and businesses can plan, they can say, well, I have to buy stock, I can follow my employees, I know when I can reopen. So it makes the pain easier to deal with. However, it doesn't solve the problem. It just buys you some breathing space. And when you reopen again, the cases will rise again. So it is likely you'll have to do it again in a couple of months' time, if not earlier. It's not a long-term strategy, but it does buy you some breathing space. Well, speaking of strategies and long-term, uh, as I mentioned off the top, the hashtag ZeroCOVID was trending over the weekend. And first off, I wanted to ask you, get your thinking on whether or not we're going about this the right or the wrong way, because uh, those that are pushing zero COVID believe that we should be concentrating uh, more on really kind of trying to eliminate cases and eliminate the virus rather than adapt to it. What do you think about that? Well, uh, if you look at the countries that have done really well with this, at least four things they've all done right. Number one, they acted early and they acted hard. Number two, they got really good at case detection. Number three, they monitored their borders and prevented infection from entering the country. And the last thing they did, they had a cohesive national strategy. We've done all these things. And particularly the, the last one is hard in a, a country that's made up of a confederation, as we are. So I think we can begin there. Like, what is our national strategy? Is it to contain the virus? Is it to get it to a place where our healthcare system is not being overrun? Or is it to a place where we can finally open our economy safely and wait out the long night before the vaccine arrives? If that is the case, then a zero strategy is actually viable. So uh, the question is, will the public tolerate the pain that it takes to get there with the understanding that it probably means an open economy afterwards? I'm hoping the economists can step up and model the different scenarios and tell us which one is cheaper. Yeah. Do we need to be looking at somewhere like New Zealand for inspiration when it comes to this? Definitely. If we're looking for what is possible, New Zealand, Australia have showed us what is possible. Uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan have showed us another route of possibility. They live with low levels of the virus by deploying extraordinary public health assets like testing, tracing, isolation, and support. So we have a variety of models to follow, but it begins with a national strategy and vision. Yeah. Are we too late, though, to apply that? I mean, one of the things you just said there, one of the first steps is to apply it early, get on top of it. Are, are we too far down the line here in Ontario and really across the country uh, to employ that? I would never say it's too late. If you say it's too late, you've pretty much given up, right? So it's never too late to turn around if you're going down a bad road. It just means you've got to pay a higher price. Okay. And you also mentioned a national strategy there, doctor, and there's been a lot of talk about that uh, in the news uh, today. Do you think uh, we need, could Canada benefit from an overarching sort of national strategy coming from Ottawa? It definitely could. One way to think about this is imagine a forest fire blazing across the country with different profiles, different provinces. If if one province says, well, let it burn, another one says, let it burn to a certain level, another one says, we tolerate no fire whatsoever, is that a rational way to look at a public health disaster across the country? I think we need a consistent vision for the country because the principles of containment have to be uniformly applied, especially since our border, interracial borders are porous. 
Yeah, if we had a national strategy, would that clear up a lot of the confusion, do you think? Because, you know, we hear from uh, callers uh, to this show. I'm sure you've heard it uh, yourself, seen it in the news. So many people are just so confused when it comes to the restrictions, the limitations, what color, what zone is in. Uh, really, they're just kind of throwing their hands in the air in frustration as to uh, what's allowed, what's not allowed. Oh, absolutely. It's ridiculous, the diversity of, of communication tools. Even the apps aren't used the same across the country. Right? A red zone in Ontario is not the same as a red zone in Manitoba and so forth. It's it's nuts. So that would help. I mean, but it's more than just uh, the contiguity of policies that make for a good communication strategy. It's actually clear thinking and clear, clear speech, which I'm struggling with right now, obviously. But we definitely <laughs> communication has failed dramatically across this endeavor, and it's frustrating to watch. Hey, welcome to my day every day, doctor. <laughs> uh, finally, wanted to ask you, is there somewhere in the country that has been or is doing this right? I was reading the examples of the Maritimes and the provinces out there and how they've been able to contain things with strategies when it comes particularly to traveling between uh, provinces and quarantining. Do we need to look at certain uh, regions and say, okay, that is working and we need to apply that overall in Canada? Should that be part of our national strategy if we're to get one? Yes, that's part of the whole art of the possible thing. Atlantic Canada has shown it's possible. Even the North has shown that it's possible. Now, they have certain advantages. They never had high cases to begin with. They haven't got the high you know, uh, throughput flux areas like Toronto and Montreal to deal with. However, the fact that they identified the fact that they had um, low caseload to begin with and then secured their borders and then deployed extraordinary testing capacity, that's key. We can get there. If we get our cases down low enough, then we can deploy these mitigation tools and hold it that way. So, yes, we should definitely look for inspiration from Atlantic Canada. Dr. Dio Nanden, really appreciate the time and the expertise as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Raywat Dio Nanden is with the University of Ottawa. He's an epidemiologist. Well, just ahead of the winter travel season, the federal government issuing an online travel alert to seniors thinking about heading south. But that message seems to be having little impact on some Canadian snowbirds. Here's travel expert Marty Firestone. He joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Marty, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, With the border shut down, the border closed, uh, just how are determined snowbirds, how are they getting south, Marty? They are determined and they're getting more determined as time goes on. We have found this last month sales have just gone through the roof and they are going. They are going knowing they have COVID coverage, albeit maybe with some limited caps on top of them, but they are still going and very confident that they will be fine. All right, because you can fly over the border into a destination. You just can't drive or cross the border. Correct. Although people are getting creative with companies that get you to Buffalo, get your car to Buffalo, and then you can drive from that point on. So give them points for creativity, I guess. Yeah. Do we know what's going on there? Because I was reading that about some snowbirds that they're going to fly to, say, Florida. Uh, They'll reach their destination and they're having their car shipped down there. So eventually they'll have their car and a way to get around. That's correct. I mean, it's it's just trying to find a loophole in what's happening out there. But at the end of the day, somebody will pick that up and say this just isn't isn't 100 percent and uh, change that rule. Yeah. Do you know offhand what that loophole is? Because I think that mystifies and me and some other people. I mean, if I'm not allowed to physically cross the border, why would my car, even if it's just being shipped with no one, why would it be allowed to cross? It- 
it makes no sense. And that's that's just part of the whole problem, including the advisory that now has this small little segment on it addressing the people 60 years and older that it may be in their best interest not to travel south at this point. But that's on a level three travel advisory warning page on, on a Canadian page that few, if any, would even read. All right. Meantime, uh, you also have a bit of an interesting story of a, a client who recently booked an Air Canada flight, only to have that flight uh, pulled just a few weeks before they were about to take off. Yeah. Co- coincidentally, I have three clients that were booked on a flight December 18th from Pearson to uh, Palm Springs. And Saturday night, received a re- we regret to inform you that this flight has been canceled due to the impacts of COVID-19, government travel advisories, and or health and safety concerns. No issue of another date that's been made available. You can just get a refund voucher or your money back. That's the mentality of it. Now, why would they be canceling something due to COVID concerns two weeks or three weeks out? I mean, we don't really know exactly what the situation is going to be like then, do we? Yeah, absolutely not. And and even what I find more bizarre about the whole scenario is this is the same company that's offered you free COVID-19 travel insurance embedded in your policy, when uh, not policy, but your airline ticket when you buy it. So somehow... It's good for some flights and good for some people going to certain destinations. But for whatever reason, the Palm Springs flight on December the 18th, it wasn't good enough for. So it it leads me to believe, and believe me, it's only an opinion, that maybe the flight just didn't fill. But you can't sort of, you know, address it that way and then say every other flight is fine to go. Well, it seems as if the cancellation policy is about as clear as the color-coded uh, you know, uh, framework for uh, COVID and its uh, restrictions and limitations. It really is kind of baffling, isn't it? it? It's extremely baffling. So here they bought their travel insurance already with some peace of mind that they have coverage for COVID, albeit as a rider copying at 200, 300, 500,000 or possibly embedded in the $5 million contract of the policy, again, depending on what company. And now they purchased airline tickets and they can't get away because the flight's been canceled. So it, it's just a huge dilemma now. Now, of course, they have to cancel the travel insurance and look for another way to find their way down there. Now, are they able to get their tickets refunded and get their money back, or is that only if they purchase travel or cancellation insurance? No. At least they have made that quite clear that you are eligible for a total refund of the money, or in fact, you can get an additional 65% bonus miles if you use their miles. So they are allowing you to get it back, to have a voucher that's good with no expiry date, fully transferable, and can be used multiple times. So that part is somewhat acceptable in the overall scheme of things because as you know there's many people back in march that are still sitting with vouchers and no refunds so this is i guess a positive if you're looking for something here yeah listen i know you're a travel expert your business is travel but let me ask you what is your advice to snowbirds who are sitting there sitting there listening to this uh, right now and are thinking about maybe booking a flight uh, about uh, going south despite what's all going on right now i have gone on record saying as as conditions uh, increase in the states or, and as the hospitals are filling up, as the intensive care beds are becoming less and less, there is no reason that anybody, in my opinion at this point, should be venturing out at least until the travel advisory is lifted, a vaccine addressed and distributed and just any hope that the world will return to some kind of normal soon. All right. Marty, appreciate the candor and appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Here's travel expert Marty Firestone. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify. Search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.